Well, hey there, friends. Um, I am a little scattered at the moment. Um, realized that I had put the wrong notes in my, um, my notebook just now. Uh, so you're about to get a wedding homily, because that was the last thing I used. Uh, anybody anybody want to get married uh, this morning? Um, kind of not joking. Uh, just change the names on it. We're good. Um, and I uh, didn't grab the marker that I wanted to use. Oh, yes, I did. It's right here. Here we go. We're doing great. I've got five kids at home, so I have an excuse, okay? Uh, It's New Year, and we are one month into five children, and we're losing, okay? Um, So nobody's winning, my house. Hey, uh, welcome. We tend to kick off our New Year's uh, every year with a little um, little bit different uh, of a sermon series. We typically always preach through a book of the Bible, uh, but then in January and then during some months during our summer months, um, we will do a more of a topical based. And January is really a, a mini series uh, time for us to kind of talk about who we are, who we want to be, partially of like a vision series of this is who we're, we're uh, aiming and striving to be and become in this city. Uh, and that's what we're doing right now. And so we're doing a three-week series uh, right now, starting today, um, on generosity. I think there's an image for this. We're calling this series uh, Generous. Here's a question, though, as my uh, pen is running out. Can anybody see that in the back? See that word? Is that big enough font? I'll grab another marker from the back. But we good in the back? We'll make sure before we get going that people can see it. So we're going to talk about generosity. Here's what I learned this week that's fascinating. We want to be a generous people. We want to be a generous people over these next three weeks as it relates to three different areas of life and reality. We want to be generous with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. And so I was studying this this week of uh, what does it actually mean? What do we mean when we actually say generous? What does the Bible mean when when it calls us to be a generous people? And you've all probably got a working definition of that. But when you ask the question, what does that word mean? I kind of went on a little bit of a journey to go, what does this word actually mean biblically? So I'm studying the Greek words, which is the New Testament original language. I'm studying all the Greek words used for generosity in the New Testament. uh, And I I discovered this. This This blew my mind this week. That in the New Testament, the same exact word for generosity is the same word for singleness or simpleness or sincerity. And so I started studying all these passages where this word is used. To be generous is to be single-minded. To be generous is to be simple. To be generous is to be sincere. And here's what the Bible is alluding to. Part of what that means, that it is the same exact Greek word as this, is that to be generous is the same thing as being and having an undivided heart. An undivided attention, an un, a decluttered mind, a single focus, a single affection, a, a simple mind that is undivided in its attention and its affection and its drive and its passions, single-mindedness, if one can attain that, if one can become that, if one can possess that, at the same time, you will be generous. It doesn't mean that you need to add generosity to your life. It means a little bit like Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, that seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek you first, seek you simply, seek you singly the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That actually, if we want to become a generous people, we actually need to simplify our minds and our hearts affection. If we want to become a generous people, we're actually trying to declutter what's going on up here and in here. And when we become single-minded, when we become singularly focused on something, we will then automatically become generous. So that's what we're going to talk about. How do we simply and sincerely become generous? It looks like 
becoming simple-minded and singularly focused. It's actually the, the split allegiances. It's actually the, the divided affections. It's the distracted mind that makes us ungenerous. Because when my mind is distracted, when I'm not single, singularly focused, I, everything becomes a threat and I have to hoard on to my stuff and I don't have enough to give away. I actually can't give you anything because I'm not sure about my future and I'm not sure about what's happening. So I have to hoard and protect and become me focused. I live in fear and anxiety about what I don't have when my mind and my heart have split affections and allegiances. And when my mind and heart are split, and I'm living in fear and anxiety, I cannot be generous with you. So this mini sermon series, we're gonna be focused on this simplicity of hopefully being and becoming very non-anxious, very generous people with our time and our talents and our treasures. So uh, today is the first one. We're getting a little meta today. Okay, welcome to Midtown 12 South. We're gonna deal with some meta ideas. Today, we're gonna talk about what does it mean to be generous with our time. And we want to talk about how does the Christian engage with and see themselves in time. Several of my favorite and Hollywood's uh, biggest blockbuster movies over the last five to ten years deal with our uh, intrigue on this topic, time. Avengers Endgame, yes, anybody? Time. Uh, Interstellar, another like, like mind bender time. Uh, Tenet. Right? It's like no one understands that movie. You don't understand it, okay? Uh, but it's amazing. Uh, and then maybe the most profound uh, movie I've seen in the last five to 10 years that deals with this intrigue and mystery of how does one e- exist in time? Anyone seen About Time? Right? Let's just, we're just going to play that this morning, and then that's the sermon, okay? It's an amazing movie. Rom-com is not, don't put it in that category, okay? It, you, will, you will cry your eyes out, and it will, and it will change how you think about time. Um, but I started uh, thinking about, man, what is it about this reality and this mystery that draws us in, and why are we so fascinated by this topic of time? And so what we're going to look at this morning is how does the Christian, how do members of God's kingdom relate to this thing called time. So we think of time, and, and we should, because God invented it this way uh, initially. We think of time linearly. Gosh, is that not working either? Come on. Who's the marker guy around here? Okay. Can you all see that arrow? That's just one singular linear timeline. Okay. We exist right here in 2023, if you weren't sure. The church exists in 2023, we want to talk about what does it mean to exist in a linear timeline? What does it mean to exist in time? And how does the Christian think about themselves in space and time? Okay, we're going to get a little meta, like I said, but stay with me. Because our time then begins to wear out. Our time begins to wear on. Minutes turn into hours and days turn into seasons. And everyone I know feels like they don't have enough time. High schoolers, college kids, uh, single people, young married people, people with one kid, you think you, got, you, think you don't have time, okay? Uh, but everybody, everybody I know talks about, oh man, I just need, I just, I'm so busy, I don't have enough time, and, and I, I gotta study for this thing, and I'm trying to get this, I gotta, I gotta land this deal, and I'm trying to, trying to work this ladder, and, it, and everybody I know talks about time in scarcity, like they don't have enough of it. And when it comes to how we view ourselves in time, we have this humanistic 
finite, linear view of time, and we begin to view it very secularly, and we all live in scarcity of, I don't have enough of it. And so here's a question to ask yourself this morning. Here's a question I want to ask you this morning. How do you treat time in the sense that, what do you want time to do for you? What do you want your time here to do for you? What do you want to get from time? I would say no matter how you believe one should or could be spending their time, there is somewhere deep inside of you that believes that if you spent your time in the right, in the best, in the most efficient way, you could take all of your performance, you could take all of your achieving, and at the end of it, here's what you want time to do for you. You want time to redeem you. You want how you spend your time to redeem how you have lived in time. You want your performance, you want how you perform, you want how you produce to prove to yourself and everybody else that you spent time right. And if you can do enough of that, then you will get to the end of your time and you will say, how I spent my time redeemed me. Anybody watch Spirited over Christmas break, right? Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds is so good. Uh, really unbiblical, but so good. And, but this is the question, can how I spend my time redeem me or am I unredeemable? Yo, oh, thank you. Guys, Matt Ackerman, everybody, thank you. Look at that. I thought I was just getting whistled at. Uh, my wife's not even here, you know what I mean? But we're all asking time and we're looking to how we spend our time and how we produce in time, how productive we are in time to redeem us. We want our use of time to justify us. We want our use of time to validate us. We want our use of time to make us feel epic and like we're worth something. And if you think about this, like just step back from the timeline and think about like, this, this is like human history timeline, okay? 2023 is a dot. Like it, it will not, it, it will not make uh, a, a blip on the universe's radar of time. Like this little, I wish you could see it, like this little, little window of like your life, that's way too big for your life. It's way too big for your life on the timeline of the universe. How ridiculous to think we want how we spend our time to redeem us based on how we perform and produce and what we can prove we did with our time. And this little window, you know how long you have in this window? There's a book about it. You have 4,000 weeks. This book came out, I think a few years ago, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, written by Oliver Burkham, who writes for The Guardian. He's not a Christian, the average lifespan is 4,000 weeks, so I did a little math. I've lived about 1,875 weeks, which means my time, if I live the average 80-year lifespan, I'm about halfway done, I got about 2,100 weeks left. And how you feel when you hear that, that you do have a limited number of weeks, you, will, you are not infinite. You have a limited number of weeks on this giant timeline, on this giant timeline, uh, uh, space-time continuum, you've got a blip, you've got a dot, and how you spend those 4,000 weeks, you want to put the pressure of redeeming your very self with how you spend these 4,000 weeks. How ridiculous to think that people who have a limited number of weeks in time, 4,000 of them, you sleep for a third of them. You sleep for a third of your life where you are completely useless, and you think you can redeem yourself with your time. We're wasting away 
And because we feel so, uh, when we hear 4,000 weeks and it's, it's limited and it's not forever and when your life is done, no one's gonna write a movie about your life and it is not going to be epic and it is not going to change the world, I'm sorry. And here's how we think about this though. When you hear I've got a limited number of weeks, how that makes you feel says a lot about what kind of slave of time you and me are. We have become slaves of time because we're wasting away and we wanna make sure that in our wasting away, we're not gonna waste a second of it. And so what I try to do is have my production and my performance and what I can prove to you, I want that to alleviate my fear of being finite. So I'll overproduce, I'll overachieve, I'll accomplish my way out of my anxiety of being finite and limited. If I can get the right degree, if I can raise the right children, if I can land the right deal, if I can have enough friends, if I can go on the right vacations, if I can do all the things that I think will matter in time that will make me feel like I'm worth something, then maybe that will help me alleviate my anxiety and my fear of my finitude. In that Oliver Burkham book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, again, listen to what he says. This is, this is a secular person, not a religious person. And he may be religious, but he's not writing this book from a religious background or perspective. Listen to what he says. He says, productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient merely makes you more rushed. And trying to clear the decks simply makes them fill up faster again. And I love this line. No one in the history of humanity has ever achieved a work-life balance, whatever it is that means. And you certainly won't be able to get there by copying the six things successful people do before 7 a.m. The day will never arrive when you finally have everything under control. When the flood of emails has been contained, when your to-do lists have stopped getting longer, when you're meeting all your obligations at work and in your home life, when nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball, and when the fully optimized person you've become can turn at long last to the things that life is really supposed to be about, that day is not coming. And then he says this, let's start by simply admitting defeat. None of this is ever going to happen. From a non-Christian. So play out this storyline with me. Think about all the things like on your New Year's to-do list. If you made one of those, I'm sorry, you're probably already buckling under the weight of it and you're a week in. Good luck. Welcome to church. Here's, here's the thing. Think about all the things that you like want to do this year, the you you want to become, the working out you want to do, the accomplishments you want to achieve, the, the production, the books you're going to read, the vacation, all the things. All, and I'm not saying goals are bad. I'm not saying being driven is bad. I'm not saying having purpose is bad. But think about all the things on the to-do list. All the things on the production list, on the, on the accomplishments list, all the redemption you think would happen this year if you never stopped working and if you never stopped wasting time or if you never, never wasted time. Think about all those things. Check them all off. And then ask this question. What's on the other side of all that? Alan Jacobs asked this question. He, he's got it, uh, an art piece. There's another author, writer. He's got an art piece in his office that just says this. And then what? He says, you rush through the writing, the researching, the watching, the listening, you're done with it. You get it behind you, and then what's in front of you? He says, well, death for one thing. But in the more immediate future, you're zipping through all these experiences in order to do what exactly? He says, listen to another podcast at double speed. 
The whole attitude seems to be, let me get through this thing that I don't especially enjoy anyway so I can just go to another thing just like it that I probably won't enjoy either. And then what? Like in the finite linear view of time, all the producing and production and justifying and proving to you and all the things that I want this time to do for me, and then what? See, when we know time is limited, it ends up in a, in a humanistic way of thinking, in a, in a finite way of thinking. Because we know our time is limited, it usually makes us speed up our use of time to try to make sure I spend my time. Well, if it's limited, then, then I, have to, I have to maximize it. I have to never regret anything. And so I have to be able to look back on every season and make sure when I get on the other side of that season, there's no regret. Most of the time, no one ever feels like they have enough time because I'm speeding through the time I do have so that I can make sure my time serves me the way that I want it to and I feel good about how I spent my time. And so in the present of 2023, if we're looking for time to redeem us by our performance and our production and our proving to everybody, if that's how we view time, guess what logically cannot happen if this is how we view time? You will never be generous with your time. You can't be. You can't give away any time. It's too valuable. It's too precious. It's too much of a threat to give away time to other people. That what if that's not efficient? What if they're annoying? What if they bother me? What if, what if I give time to them and we don't do anything productive or I don't feel the way I want to feel after I hang out with them? What if I give you time and it's a bad investment? Because time has to redeem me. Time has to justify me. Time has to prove who I am to the world. I can't give you my time. And that treadmill of what we think we need time to do for us ends up making us panic. It ends up making us anxious. It ends up making us hoard and self-protect our time. This view of time will 100% of the time produce anxious and scattered people. You will not be simple and single-minded and therefore not generous if this is how you view time. Even if, even if in this paradigm of thinking like limited time, okay, well, let me give some time away. Even if there is a shred of generosity, it's still about you. I want to be known as someone who's generous. Let me prove to you how generous I am, so I'll give you my time. It's still, it's still a self-seeking, it's still a self-focused use of time. Still trying to prove something. So we want time and how we use our time to make us, to justify us, and to redeem us. This is how we've been trained to think about time. This is how we've been trained, this is how we've been conditioned to think about time. But what, is, what does scripture say to this? What is the, how does the believer engage with this? How might our time be redeemed instead of us needing our time and our use of time try to redeem us? That was a giant intro for our scripture passage this morning. You're welcome. We're gonna, don't worry, okay? It's not gonna be, I'm gonna use my time well. We're, gonna, we're not gonna rush, we're not gonna, we're gonna spend another hour here, okay? Here we go. This is Romans 13, Paul to the church in Rome. Romans 13, lots of passages I could have used. Bible talks about this a lot, but this is the one we landed on, okay? Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul says this to the church at Rome. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, this, this, this little phrase at the beginning, he says, you know the time. Bible does an interesting thing. There's two Greek words to use for time. One is chronos, which is chronologically, like that's where we get that word, chronological thinking, like space-time seconds that are, that, are, that are ticking forward. Paul doesn't use the word chronos here. He used the word kairos here. Kairos is like the opportune time, like it's time to get married. It's time to have a party. It's time to, the time has come for something. And Paul's saying, the Christian, the believer, you know, you know the time. You know how you are to exist in this time. He's not saying, you know what time, you know it's three o'clock in the afternoon. He's saying, you know the, the, the age, you know the space, you know the, the space-time continuum that you're in. You know the time. Some translations translate it, you know what time it is. That's literally how that is translated. You know what time it is, Christian. And then in verse 11, go, you can throw this back up there, Sam. He says this. By the way, Sam Ellis, everybody, home from college break. How did you get roped into doing you're trying, to, you're trying to use your time to prove something, aren't you? Unbelievable. Our example, college kid. Uh, here we go. Verse 11 says this. It says, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Okay, again, get a little meta here. Salvation here and all throughout the New Testament for the most part is not ever, is very rarely talking about the moment of someone's personal salvation like the day you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's actually not in the New Testament, another, another sermon. But here's what salvation is for the New Testament. Here's what he's talking about. He's saying salvation is the day that the kingdom of God, that's K-O-G, kingdom coming, salvation coming, the kingdom coming in its fullness. He says salvation is coming, and that day that's coming is nearer than what it was. But you've been brought into this salvation. You, you believed in this kingdom of God that had already come. The day you first believed, you believed in a kingdom that had already come, but you also know that there's a day where the kingdom is coming and it's not yet here. And so Christian, here's the paradigm that Paul does here, Jesus does it, the whole Bible does it. It places the believer after the coming of Christ, it places the believer in this spectrum, in this place that theologians call the already but the not yet. You live in a tension between what has already happened because Jesus brought the kingdom with him, but it hasn't yet fully come because Jesus hasn't returned to make all things new and all things well. So Christian, you know the time. You live, if you belong to the kingdom of God, you live in the spectrum of the already come and the not yet fully come. The already but the not yet. Something has happened in time. God entered space and time to do something in time that will guarantee the future of the coming kingdom. That's a crown, by the way, not mountains, okay? So here we go. The, the, the king himself came and lived and died and rose again and then ascended to the father and one day he's returning and the kingdom of God will fully come with him when the king returns to bring it all home. 
but we're not there yet. And so what Paul just did was he put us in time between these two things, the already, but the not yet. It's very common biblical tension for the New Testament. So what did Jesus come to do? How did Jesus in his first coming, in his first advent, how did Jesus redeem us in time? What did Jesus do to redeem our time? Okay, again, it's a little meta. Not even gonna draw this. I know, because my drawing's so good, you're disappointed. But here's, here's, here's a little way of thinking. If you can get over here to the Jewish people before Jesus came. Here's how an Old Testament Jew would have viewed themselves on this timeline. We are living in the, in the brokenness of what sin shattered in Genesis 3, and we're waiting for our salvation to come in the person of the Messiah. We're waiting for our salvation to come when God comes with his glorious future and comes to restore all this mess that sin made. The Jew was hoping for that in the Messiah coming, and they scheduled their weekly calendars in light of that. We're gonna work Sunday through Friday, and we're gonna work, and we're gonna work, and our work, and we're gonna, it's gonna be a microcosm for what we believe about the universe. Because on Saturday, when Shabbat, Saturday, when Sabbath hits, that's gonna be our day to believe that a glorious future is coming to us one day. That's gonna be our day to believe that one day rest is coming for us. So let's set aside our last day of the week, Saturday, and let's practice the art of waiting for that day. We'll work and work and work, and then we'll rest on Sunday knowing that one day rest is coming to us. That's how the Jew would view their, time, their, 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 their position in time. But the Christian, it's so subtle. The early Christians did this very intentionally. It wasn't because building space was an issue. They changed the day of their weekly gathering. Christians don't gather on Saturdays. It's not because college football's on. Like Christians don't gather on Saturdays because something has radically changed with how we view ourselves in time. The Christian doesn't labor, 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 hoping that one day rest is coming. The Christian begins their week on a day of rest. And then from that place of Sunday being the first day of the week, we then work the rest of the week. We labor, we toil the rest of the week because our rest has already come. We practice the belief on Sundays, today is the first day of the week. I know school makes this hard to believe. You think, or like case of the Mondays, makes it feel like Monday's the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And Christian, you are here to gather to believe that something has already happened and that the glorious future of what is to come and that the Jew was waiting on that would one day happen, they would hope. We believe actually the future has come into the present we believe God's glorious future has already entered the present tense. And so we start our weeks believing it. That the rest and the hope and the salvation and the joy that the Jews were waiting on, we believe has already started because Christ has already come once. Jesus brought the future into the present. Which means that the salvation that the Jews had longed for has already come. It means the heaven on earth that they were hoping for has already begun. It means the rest that they were waiting on is now available to us. It means that your justified standing before a holy and righteous God that a Jew could only hope one day, God, will you maybe be so merciful on judgment day to justify me in your heavenly courts. The Christian believes I already have that secured in the person and blood of Jesus. I'm not waiting on that one day. It's already mine in Jesus because the future has come into the present. So if you're not waiting on all those things to begin, 
If you're not waiting for, oh, one day I hope rest is coming. One day I hope joy is coming. One day I hope salvation is coming. If you're not waiting on those to come, you would have to adjust your relationship with time itself. And so in this already but not yet existence, this changes how the Christian exists in time because something has already happened in time that totally changes how we view ourselves in time. We are in an already but not yet state. We're not waiting for salvation to come, it's already come. We're not waiting for rest to come, it's already come. We're not waiting for joy to come, it's already come because the future has inserted itself into the present. The Christian has a new sense of time itself. When you get off a plane in a new time zone, if you have an Apple watch, it automatically does this, but you've got one of the, like, the manual clocks or watches. You have to adjust your watch to the right time in the new location. Because you have to know, oh, I'm living in a new time zone. Time is different here than where I used to be. I've got to set my sense of time to a different uh, metric. I've got to set my sense of time to a different way to read time here. That's a little bit like the Christian in the already but not yet state. And this is one of the most striking things that Jesus' first followers did. This was so intentional by the early church. We're going to start our weeks with our day of rest. We're going to start our weeks with our day of corporate gathering. To believe that God's ultimate future has already in part arrived in the present. Our day of rest starts the week because rest has already come. Our day of salvation starts the week because salvation has already come. And so we adjust our sense of time accordingly. Checking the clock. I'm checking the time. Okay? We're good. Got another hour or so. So now, here, Christian, here's how you exist since you know the time. Here's how the Christian is to exist. I'm going to draw a little uh, illustration right here. It's a signpost. Christian, I hate to diminish how important you think you are. Do you know how you exist in time? You're a signpost. You're a signpost. What are you a signpost for? For the glorious future that's going to come in full one day. How do you point to that day that's coming? How do you show people the day that is fully coming one day that isn't here yet? You live like it's already true in part. You adjust your time to the new location. So... All of the peace that's going to fully come to you, all of the joy that's going to fully come, all of the salvation that's going to fully come, all of the security that will fully come one day, you live in light of those things and believe them now, and you point to the day when they will come fully. We live as signposts pointing to the future that we believe has already begun. In other words, compare this use of time to this use of time. You've already been redeemed. You've already been justified. You've already been proven by Jesus. And so you don't need time to do for you what the world needs time to do for it. You don't need time the way that the world needs time. We have from Jesus what the world wants from their use of time, which means Ding, 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 full circle. If you live this way as a signpost of the kingdom that's coming and you don't need your time to do for you what the world needs, it's time to do for it. Guess what you can be? Guess how you can use your time generously? You can give it away. I don't need to overproduce. I don't need to prove anything to you. 
My, my peace and joy and rest and salvation has already happened in Jesus. So I don't need to extract that from my limited 4,000 weeks here on earth. I can use my 4,000 weeks or 2,000 weeks or 10 weeks or whatever. Until Jesus comes back, I can use that time generously. Because it's actually not scarce. It's not as scarce as you think it is. Because the kingdom has already come that has redeemed you from time. So now you can live generously in time. I don't need time to do for me what the world needs time to do for it. So, man, that's messier than I thought it was going to be. Didn't use my time well. We are to be single-minded and simply focused on our already but not yet state. And in that, we are to be generous while we wait on the fullness of the kingdom to come. So what kind of kingdom come are we talking about? If it's already started, what actually is like this final consummation going to be like and how's it going to be different? If it's already started, but it's not yet fully here, what's the fully here going to be like? What are we signposting towards? The book of Revelation tells us that when the kingdom comes, there will be no sun. And yeah, that's metaphor, but it's also real says there will be no sun in the fullness of God's kingdom when heaven comes down to earth. You know why? Because the Lord himself will be their light. So do, do a little theological deducing with me. Like use reason, use scriptural reasoning with me here. In the not yet kingdom where there is no sun, do you know the object, like the sole object we use to measure time and how much time has passed? The sun, the very object we use to measure our time will be no more, which means, Christian, the future of time for you, there will be no time. For the Christian, the future of time is the end of time. In the coming kingdom, there will be no time. Do you realize what this means? The slavery of time won't exist. The burden of time won't exist. Time won't take your loved ones from you anymore. You won't regret how you spent your time because there will be no time. The bliss of the kingdom of God will be permanent. That's the future coming kingdom. Now let me ask you this question. This was an exercise Joseph, our worship leader, and I did this week together while we were planning this service. Think, try to pull out some memories from your Rolodex. When are, when are some memories you have when you felt like time didn't exist? When were moments that you wish time could have stood still because you didn't want those moments to end? I just wish time would stop. So here are some of mine. My wedding day was awesome. We got married on the pedestrian bridge. It's amazing. Sorry you weren't invited. Certain concerts. Coldplay. First time I saw Coldplay. My gosh. Mumford at the War Memorial. Their first show in Nashville. Golly. Certain feasts. Certain gatherings of feasts. Not Thanksgiving because that's what they lost. But other feasts. <laughs> certain feasts. 
You're like, man, could this bliss, like, could we just, could I just be around this table forever with these people? Certain reunions, some family reunions, some like just like college friend reunions, some old, old friend, like you get to see, you get to be reunited. That's what that word means, reunited with old friends. Birth of my children. Someone felt like they were never going to end, but you know, the, the like, oh my gosh, I'm like watching magic happen. Like this is, oh, it's just time. Just stand still. They hand you the baby. I just don't want, like, just stop time. What's true about those moments? The moments that you wish time didn't exist. There's something in them. There's an intimacy in them. There's a shalom in them. There's, There's a healing that's happening in them. There's a unity, there's a nostalgia, there's a joy that we just wish, I just want this to last forever. Please stop time. It's almost as if we all had an innate suspicion that there's coming a day when time won't exist. It's like you have that groan to stop time because you know, you know deep within you the music from a far off country that you've never been to. You've heard the music before, you still know where you've heard it. Is, is it possible that we could exist without time? Is that possible? You know, it's divinely ironic about these memories that came to mind for me. I'm gonna try to write some of them up here. I don't know if you can see them. Wedding, reunion, feast, concert, birth. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to do this. This came to me after I did this exercise. I started realizing, do you know that all of my memories, all of the things in the moments that I wish time to stop and for time to cease, those are all biblical metaphors for the coming kingdom? It's like something's hardwired in you and into these events. Something's hardwired into the grand feast. Something's hardwired into you of the grand reunion. And that's why these are the moments that you go, man, I just wish they could last forever. And the Holy Spirit's saying, one day they will. Because buried into you is the hope that all those things could last forever. Jesus wants you to know how everlasting this kingdom is. He so wants you to know this that in John 16, he's talking about a woman giving birth. And then listen to what he says about the new birth that will happen for all of creation. This coming kingdom one time will not exist, the not yet, but it is coming. He says, one day, one day your sorrow will cease. And then he says, and I'm gonna turn your sorrow into joy. And he says, and no one will take your joy from you. Not even time. One day. One day, not even time will steal your joy. So friends, if this is our future, I promise you there's nothing to be anxious about here. If this is your future, we can be generous signposts here, borrowing from the future that is coming that has already begun in the Christian. We can be a people We can be a people that are non-anxiously present with people because I don't have to be getting everything out of this moment and making this moment everything that I want time to make it for me. 
because we won't need time to do for us here if we know that one day time won't exist. So this morning we're gonna come to the communion table. Daryl's gonna come and fence it for us and set us a feast, but I hope we set our hearts and our minds singularly, simply, undividedly on this reality and the Lord who one day will end time will walk with you until kingdom come. Let's pray. Jesus, we are slaves of time because we don't always know what, we don't always believe what it is that you've already done. And so Jesus, would you, um, you've already redeemed us in time. Would you help us to see time redemptively that we might be a generous people with our time. We might be a non-anxious people with our time. We might not view time in scarcity we might view time gloriously, knowing that I don't need my 4,000 weeks to justify me because you've already done it. I don't need my 4,000 weeks to redeem me because you've already done it. I don't need my 4,000 weeks to give me rest. You've already done it. So as you lift our eyes over the horizon of the day that is coming, give us rest and peace and joy in time here, we pray in your name. Amen.